All right, so what are we going to do tonight after the worship entire and team? That was fabulous. I really enjoyed it. I felt a little lousy that we kind of cut into it a little bit. But we thought, given the nature of this evening, Labor Day weekend, we're regrouping after the summer, it'd be a great evening based on a few things. Number one, for the summer, we used, this, used it as an opportunity to give ministry opportunity. Different people doing different things, and we really loved that. I did anyway. I think the second thing is that uh, we are regrouping, and it's a good time, as both Peter and Paul in their writing said, I choose to remind you of these things. And so we want to remind you of some things in a fun and creative way. Thirdly, we are kind of doing a little mini-series on who do you say I am. We've looked at Jesus as king. We looked at Jesus as lamb. And we're going to look at something a little different this evening. And then... Um, we are going to land our time around the table. So I've asked four people to come and teach with me this evening. I can do this for 40 minutes, but that's kind of boring. What about having Dana and Sam come and sit over here, Tyler and Stu over there. There's nothing about them sitting either side, but the fact that there are two chairs over there. Okay, we love collaborative partnership we love finding consensus in our leadership and uh, I gave them no brief other than there are four things in what it looks like to be part of the Genesis story some churches call it membership I am a little uh, pro and against it but there's something about being part of this people this community that God has put together on mission and so the four things are the dining room table, which Dana is going to quickly wrap up for us. Sam, a life of service. So it's the table and service. And she is service. She doesn't talk about service. Tyler's going to talk about mission, just having led 27 people to Porto as an example, has traveled with me to the Middle East and to South Africa as we've ministered into those spaces. And then Stu's going to land us around giving. So it is the table. It is service. It is mission and it is giving. Those are the four ingredients of what it means to be part of the life of this church. We love those who pop in now and again, one-offs, once every month, whatever. Wonderful. But to really be in the engine room of who we are and what we're doing is to buy into those four essentials. Slide number one, please, homie. So what I want to do is take about 10 minutes which I say reluctantly, but I'm going to try my best to stay into that. Not that one, the first scripture, please, Ben. You've been away too long. He was on the set, a cameraman on The Chosen. And you know, since he met with Jesus, he's been unplayable, I'm telling you. Okay, so the gospel, we all know this. The gospel gives us opportunity to be a new creation. We read it in this text in 2 Corinthians 5. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The gospel does many wonderful things, but for the purposes of tonight, I want to drill down just ever so slightly on the idea of us being a new creation. Now, I know we don't always feel that way. 
We don't always come across that way. We feel decidedly old creation, the flesh, as one of the great translations speaks about. But the promise, there's a hope in here. And I want that hope to captivate your heart this evening, that we are a new creation. God has started doing something new in us. That for the hopeless, He gives hope. For the despairing, He gives faith. For the reluctant, He gives boldness. It's part of God taking us and in the ever-tenderness of the divine creator, he starts changing us. Some things are in an instant. Some things will take a lifetime. But that's what God has in mind. So if we go back to the first creation, what do we see? This is what we see. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. You got that, Benjamin? All right. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground. Are you a creationist, Chris? Absolutely. I'm not a literalist. I don't think creation has to have happened in seven days. I think one day Peter says this is a thousand. I mean, I'm not held captive by that because there weren't even days then. But I do believe in an Adam. And I believe in an Adam and an Eve from the dust of the ground. God created Adam and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Isn't it wonderful that Jesus, as he's about to ascend, goes to his disciples and he breathes on them. So many exquisite parallels. First creation and the breath of God. New creation and the breath of God. And man became a living being. You dead tonight, honestly. I had the privilege of speaking. Meryl, Dane, and I spoke an event, at an event for John Mark on Thursday um, in Santa Monica. And I was just astounded by a room full of leaders and how much hopelessness had crept into hearts. Ladies and gentlemen, what we are doing, dealing with here is the miraculous. It's the supernatural, the impossible, the improbable. That's the language we use for the life we live. How do you know, Chris? Because I've been doing this for 45 jolly years. And I've seen the process of the new creation replicating the old creation where God breathed into Adam, formed him out of the dust and the ground, and now he says, I'm going to do it again with you. Now, the Lord had planted the garden in the east in Eden. There he put the man he formed. Here it comes. The Lord God made all kinds of trees out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing, pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden was the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, why this text? Well, obviously it helps us understand old creation, new creation, breath of God, breath of God. But there's another component here, dear friend, and it is God the gardener. We know from chapter 1, when God introduces himself as the artist, he says, in the beginning God created of everything. I love, I love talking about this. Everything that God could have introduced him. You know what it's like when you meet someone, like you come here for the first time and you think, do I wear this shirt or that? Do I comb my hair this way or that? Do I wear those sneakers? Do I smile? Do I lift my hands? What on earth am I supposed to do? Well, God chose to say, hi, my name is God and I'm an artist. Second chapter, hi, my name is God. And I'm a gardener. I make gardens. Beautiful. And as we unfold this, it'll become even more beautiful. So God the gardener takes the soil and into a garden, he places trees of all kinds. Now, Chris, where are you going with all of this? I'm glad you've asked. Isaiah 541, please. 
verse 18. I will make trees flow in the barren heights. What an incredible promise. Where there's barrenness, there are rivers. One of the things that Mary and I love doing is praying for ladies who can't have babies and seeing God break that cycle in their womb and put life. Where there's barrenness, the, the, the river of God begins to flow. I love the miraculous. I love God doing things that we could never do and even medicine cannot do on occasion. The springs within the valley. So barren heights, valleys, I turn the desert into pools of water and the parched ground into springs. I will put into the desert. So we have barrenness, valleys, desert, parched land. And then listen to this exquisite verse. And I hope it's going to make sense in two minutes. I will put into the desert the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, the olive. I will set junipers into the wasteland and fir and cypress together. So that people may see and know, may consider and understand that the hand of the Lord has done this. And the Holy One of Israel has created it. Now what does this have to do with the previous two verses? Here it is. Theologians and biologists or botanists say these trees don't grow together. They are not designed to be in the same ecosystem. But God says, so that everyone knows the Lord has done this, I'm going to take trees of different ilk, different shape, different passion, different enthusiasm, short ones, tall ones, big ones with huge spread, tiny, thin, narrow ones, and I'm going to make a jungle in the desert. Now, do you know what an exquisite picture that is of the church? What God wants to do, dear friends, in an usness, old creation, new creation, breath of God, breath of God, flowing together is I will create a garden, and in that garden I will put trees of all ilk. I am absolutely persuaded that God creates communities as gardens or ecosystems. That if we allow him to plant us into that garden, we will flourish. As a father, spiritually, I see so many Christians who drift from church to church as if it has no implication. They tell me that you can move a tree once. I believe my statistics are right. If you botanists can correct me afterwards gently, you know, I have a tender ego. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they tell me, I think, that if you move a tree once, it will flourish. If you move it a second time, less so. By the third time, it will not recover. And if God the gardener gives us a picture from nature, that I plant you into a garden, I will take trees from all ilk and make a jungle in the desert, then this is what we understand, dear friends, is that God wants to put you and me into an ecosystem called a community of diverse people, of ages and experiences and wealth and cultures and ethnicities and academic levels. It doesn't matter. So that God gets the glory. It's no good if we create a church full of sameness. Man can do that. There are a couple of tricks to get a crowd together. And we all pat ourselves on the back and say, great job. No, it isn't the same. We've used the sociological tricks to gather a group of people together and we think it's good. Now, this is way more exquisite. It's God creating an ecosystem in which he plants you and me so that we can flourish and people can look and say, wow, only God 
can achieve that. One more passage, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. This was a city, like Los Angeles, of enormous deprivation. If you read it, you could just change some of the names and you think that describes L.A. What, after all, is Apollos? Who are these superstars? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. Here it comes. As God has assigned his task. What is your task in this ecosystem? Or is it a church, if I can be a little fatherly and a little bit cheeky, that you just pop into now and again to satisfy some cultural, spiritual obligation? Or is it the deep conviction that God has taken you, the cedar or the fir or the cypress, and he's planted you into this ecosystem, a desert, if you will, and together we create a jungle effect which changes the climate. If a butterfly flaps its wings in Brazil, it can produce a tornado in Texas, is what one philosopher said. The slightest action here can lead to the biggest impact there. And friends, that's what God has in mind. He said, I planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God makes it grow. Do you want to grow? I mean, like really grow? Do you want to become whole, spiritually transformed? You want to see yourself as a, no longer as a broken victim from life circumstances and challenges, but you have seen yourself as, as a whole person, as a radiant person full of joy and kindness and goodness. And you cannot lose the smile because of God doing it. Sometimes, folks, it is hard work. Sometimes community is not easy. Again, I know I've been leading for 40 years come May next year. It's dang hard. But the benefit at the end of the day, as any gardener will tell us, the flower that appears, the leaves that grow, the shade it creates, the fragrance it offers up, is because they're in the right ecosystem to flourish fully. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters has one purpose. You, sir, madam, have one purpose, and they will be rewarded according to their labor. For we are God's workers, so we are co-workers in God's service, and you are God's field. My invitation, which is what it is, as could it be that God wants to invite you into this ecosystem, it's going to cost you selfishness, self-preoccupation, what Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, calls expressive individualism. But when he puts you in a jungle, the evidence in your life and in others is surely the hand of the Lord has done this. This is a good thing. All right. Um, all of us who are getting up have a timer, so I'm going to set it real quick. What I love about that is we have not gotten together, all five of us, and talked, and you are going to get to see a beautiful through line, I think, through the, what we're sharing this evening. So I get to talk about the table. If you've been around long enough, you know this is something that really matters to us. For years before COVID, we every single Sunday gathered around a meal with over 100 people, it was bring and share, it was amazing. Obviously COVID changed some of those dynamics, but this is something that matters and continues to matter to us as we figure out the iterations of that for our community. 
Now, there is a biblical tradition uh, throughout the narrative of Scripture where eating together, as this is symbolic of, is a sign of God's kingdom being present. This is a picture and a practice that both the prophets spoke about, the psalmist spoke about. There's a beautiful passage in Isaiah, I think it's 25, I have it written here, where it says, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make, the Lord of hosts, I love it, God is hosting on this mountain. He will make for all peoples a feast of rich foods, a feast of well Uh, matured wines, of rich foods filled with marrow, of well-matured wine strained clear. There is this idea of God, the host of all creation, taking all peoples up the mountain and preparing a feast before them. The psalmist speaks about that. You prepared a table for me, Psalms 23, in the presence of my enemies. And so the meal, friends, from creation itself is a deeply sacred activity to Jesus, both in what it symbolically represents, but also uh, its relationship and the sustaining power that it holds. Think about it for a second. Food is something that we need physically, but sharing a meal with with others is something that we need spiritually. And so it's this beautiful marriage where we are sustaining our physical bodies and our souls at the same time. And it is intrinsic to the very faith we hold. You've heard this said here before, but only after the Reformation did the center of Christian gatherings move from the table to the pulpit. It wasn't about this. It was about that. It was about people coming together around a meal. And Jesus so beautifully continues this tradition by having some of his most poignant ministry moments around a meal, around a shared table. And that is not coincidence that when the 5,000 gather, Jesus says, we are going to feed them because I want people to come together and share this meal. And it was a meal that was shared by all sorts of people, all sorts of trees, to use that analogy. Insiders, outcasts, Jews, Gentiles, men, women. I mean, you had prostitutes, politicians, uh, tax collectors, fishermen. People who would never normally mix found themselves because of Jesus eating at the same table. And if there's one thing I want to impart to us this evening, it's that true dining room table Christianity, as we like to call it, is best when we gather, not because of our similarities, but because of our differences that are only unified in the power of Jesus. He calls us here. When the Galatian writer says, uh, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus, it's not because when we become Christians, we lose our identity. It's that when we become Christians, the thing that holds us together, the primary thing is Jesus. It's not because we cease to lose who we are. It's rather the power of Jesus brought us together. It unifies us. And if nothing else is the same, we hold to him. I got to sit a few weeks ago, Judy, she's not here tonight, but rad woman in our community. She's in her 80s. I'm in my early 30s. My little daughter was there. And I thought, this is Christian community. Judy and I have lived very different lives in very different places, but we can sit together. She made cinnamon rolls. We had coffee outside. It was amazing. They were good. Go ask Judy to hang out. But I sat and I listened to her story and I thought, this is why Christian community matters. Not so I can stand next to you and hang out with my besties and people who are in the same situation of life with me. 
but people who we can sow into one another the diversity of our experience so that the kingdom of God can be expanded and Jesus himself can be glorified. It is when we share in the diversity of the table that we share in the very heart of Jesus. This is the holy habit that he calls us to. This is the thing that he says, do this in remembrance of me. Not read your Bible, and that is a good thing. Not preach, and that is a good thing. Not tithe, and that is a good thing. No, he says, do this in remembrance, because this is the moment when very different people get to break bread together. I've had the privilege of being a part of a community that spanned, in our table community, uh, 40 years Married, single, kids, no kids, money, no money. And we have walked together in the difficulties of those seasons. And I can tell you, friends, church, is do, do not buy into the fallacy that we are better when we gather with those who are like us. We just aren't. It is not reminiscent of Jesus. Diversity, a shared table, is Christianity is about fellowshipping with people who are not like you, and the table invites us to that. All right. We're just going to keep going down the line. Um, Yeah, so I have the honor of just talking to you about service, and whenever I get asked about it, um, why do you do this with your life? the word that always comes to mind and the the way the conversation quite always goes is right on back to our adoption. Um, I can't separate the two in my life. Um, There is this part of us that at one point had nothing, uh, at one point was alone, at one point, um, I'm going to try to not cry during this, Um, at one point just had no idea what we were doing and Jesus comes in and he rescued you wherever he rescued you he rescued you um and that is the beauty in adoption um I actually was adopted at 17 by an incredible couple um and one of the most vivid pictures of the first time I learned what it meant to be a part of a family um I was sitting in my uh, in the living room one day and my adopted mom walked in and said hey can you do the dishes And I must have looked visibly upset because she came in and she sat down next to me. Um, And I remember thinking, like, what an inconvenience. Like, can't you see that I'm doing something? Um, Because my whole life up until 17, I was serving myself. I took care of myself. I fended for myself. I got what I needed. I did my own thing. So I had to learn how to... Well, be told what to do, but more importantly, how to be a part of a community, how to be a part of a family. Um, And she sat down and she said to me, "Um," she said, in this home, we want to serve God. In this home, we do not want to miss what the Lord could do through us and in us in this place and in this family. Um, And sometimes that's going to inconvenience you. And sometimes it's going to look like doing the dishes, and sometimes it's going to look like taking out the trash, but also sometimes it's going to mean sitting with your brother and sister as they go through the darkness. Um, And that has been so true in this community. I have taken that word that Susan gave me so many years ago, and I have implemented it into my life and into the truth of what Jesus has done for me. 
um, he brought me into family and he saved me. And I then, for the rest of my life, get to lay it all down in service to him. Um, one of my favorite examples of this happening uh, with Jesus is in Matthew 8. It says, Jesus went into Peter's house and saw um, his mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. Out of the overflow of receiving new life and a new opportunity and healing, not just physically, but in her spirit, she couldn't help but with all that she have, serve him. Um, but my favorite part comes, like, that was awesome, but this is awesome too. It says, um, when evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. She was healed. She got up, gave her whole self to whatever Jesus needed, and she made room for the Lord to do his ministry. Her obedience and pouring out of, Jesus saved me, I'm gonna give everything I've got. It made room for a home used for the ministry of Jesus. That is what this place is. This place is a home where we get to be a part of what Jesus is doing. And sometimes that means being inconvenienced, but I'm telling you, it is so much more beautiful when you get to operate fully adopted, fully a part of this family. Um, I've just seen the fruit of that in my own life and so many of yours. So serving is about being adopted into the family of Jesus. Gonna raise this mic about two feet. <laughs> and out a bit more. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I want to kind of continue on the, the marriage of service and mission. It's a very, they're kind of sister qualities to one another. But particularly, I want to talk about mission local and mission global. Both are a huge, I should start my timer. Both are a huge aspect of, of community life together. My life was radically changed on a mission trip to Guatemala. I, uh, we got to spend a week building a home for a family who, when we got there, lived under a piece of tin and four sticks. I don't even know how it stood up, to be honest. And I remember giving them their home, giving them the keys to their home at the end of the week, and we walked in, and the dad was just in there, just bawling his eyes out, just jumping. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus bawling his eyes out. And I mean, I met with the Lord in that moment. I, tears were just, it was a waterfall out of my sunglasses. And I was just saying, Lord, whatever you want to do with my life when I get back, you've got it. Like I am all yours from here on out. And I love it because there was something about the missional nature of global mission, I guess, that wasn't just for the adventure. It wasn't just to go experience something new, but it met the needs and brought light to dark places. But it also radically changed my life for when I got home. I'm a different person because of it. And so I want to start by asking you the question, what is the consequence if we don't live a life on mission? What would it look like if the church ceased to have a heart of mission at the very center of what we do? Genesis 1 kind of becomes our framework for the ideal creation uh, 
framework <laughs> for the ideal methodology the, uh, of what it looks like for God and man to dwell together. God creates in a garden. He makes this garden full of beautiful trees, all different sorts of trees. And the idea is, is it's supposed to be this, it is this place where heaven and earth exist as one reality together. That's the beauty of the garden. God and man exist in unity. But the rest of the Old Testament goes on with story after story after story of man and woman forgetting who God is, forgetting who they are, and forgetting the mission that he put on their lives. What was supposed to happen was this great crescendo that God and man existed in unity in the Garden of Eden, and it would crescendo out so that the whole world would look like Eden. But instead, it was kind of a decrescendo. Man became myopic. It was all about me, what serves me. And the opposite happened. The whole world started to look less like the garden. And so if the mission originally was go forth from this place where heaven and earth exist as one reality and create that, spread that all over so that wherever we go, we would say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done right here on earth, wherever I am, as it is in heaven. But we lost that mission. So what is the consequence if that happens? I love later on uh, as, as uh, you know, the prophet Isaiah begins to uh, talk to Israel, or rebuke Israel, uh, for how they've forgotten this mission. He encourages them back to it. Uh, I have this, this same, uh, me and some of my friends, we call ourselves, we have like BC Tyler and then Tyler, right? There's the before Christ Tyler and then there's Tyler now. And uh, this is as if Isaiah is talking to BC Tyler right here. And he's saying, you forgot, you've perverted justice. All the poor and the needy people amongst them, you forget about them and you just give yourself whatever you need. You take care of yourself. And then he says this, but if you were to go live a life on mission, here's what would happen. If you lived in to God's created order for you, he says, you'll go out in joy. This is Isaiah 55. And you'll be led forth in peace and the mountains and hills will burst into song before you and the trees of the field will clap their hand. If you go out into mission, Creation will create a path for you to go and bring Edens to dark places. And he goes on to say, instead of the thorn bush uh, will grow the juniper. And instead of the briars, the myrtles will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, and it will be an everlasting sign that will endure forever. When we live a life on mission, we begin to turn that decrescendo back around. It's never a selfish thing. It's never just for the adventure. It's never just for the fun of going to see people in a new context. But instead, it's recognizing that there are people who have never known this Eden reality, never knew the possibilities of what life with God could look like. And so we go and we take light into these dark places. Sometimes it's service. Sometimes it's going and loving on the brokenhearted, building a home. Sometimes it's going and equipping church pastors and church leaders and church volunteers. The possibilities are endless, but all with the heart to get back to where it all began. Jesus finishes, uh, or kind of begins, <laughs> finishes his time on earth, begins Acts 1 with this call to his people, to his followers. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. 
I love it. It's this the idea that, that your walk with me isn't just meant for where you are right here, right now, but also for Judea and Samaria. That surrounding context that's similar but different, but also the outer known. In sales, there's this term target marketing. You've maybe heard it before. You know, you have like your bullseye. It's all your friends, your people that you're with all the time. You know them, you love them, you know whatever the heck you're doing, they're on board with, right? And then you have your second and your third rings out. The people who, ah, I'd love to be able to help them, but I don't really know them that well. And then there is like those $15 million realtors on Balboa Island that you have no business even being in sort of proximity with, right? But we need to reach all of them. So what's our plan to reach all of them? I wonder if today, just as a wrap up, is what is your plan? What is kind of your target? The people around you that you know you can live a life on mission and service to right here in your home context, in your work, in your school, in your house, in your friendships. What about those people one step removed? So maybe it's on the streets in Costa Mesa. Maybe it's that friend group that you know you'd uh, love to be friends with, but not always seen with. But then what about the outermost? How are you going to reach them? What about the people sitting in darkness who have never heard the name of Jesus? What's your plan to bring light to that dark place? My heart is beating so fast. I... Uh... When I was told I had five minutes to do this, I was like, I usually need the five minutes just to like come back down out of anxiety mode, you know, and be able to say any cohesive words. But um, Chris asked me to talk about giving. Um, and <laughs> anyway, uh, there's so many, so many things to say. I asked like, what do you, what do you mean? And, and he was like, well, you're generous, so talk about giving. Um, God's generosity is incredible. Uh, and I have chosen actively to participate in it in my life. And I want to underscore what I'm saying here with the fact that my life is an insane testimony of God's goodness and provision. And I will tell you all about it in detail at any other point from my incredible wife, my family, my house, my business, everything. I chose to submit it to God under the understanding that he's generous and I cannot outgive him. And he has... Uh, upheld his promises. So we're talking about giving. Why is this important to Genesis? I've written down four primary points. One, God is a giver, and we are called to be like him. To be Christians is to be Christ-like. Christ is the reflection of Father God. He's the accurate portrayal of who God is, and he is a giver. From creation to recreation through salvation, we see God's consistent quality of being a giver. Right? He is, in the beginning, in Genesis, he gives the breath of life. Think about that. We sang this evening, we give back the breath in praise. I can't even guarantee my own next breath. If you want to get thankful and think about generosity, think about, that was a gift. That was a gift. Like it's, <laughs> You can really bring it down to a very achievable, understandable level. God gave breath of life into creation, into Adam. He then gave Eve to Adam that there would be a partnership, that there would be community, they wouldn't be alone. He gave the earth to them that they would have food and shelter, that they would have dominion, that they would move out and multiply God's rule and reign, as Tyler said. And then in the recreation and salvation, we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave 
his one and only son. His hands are constantly open, and he's a giver, and we want to be like him. Two, giving enables community to be built. On a very practical level, to do this costs money. We pay rent, we pay staff, we pay utilities, we buy bread, we buy grape juice, we buy wine. It just costs money to gather. And so there's a financial need that giving financially meets a need and, and empowers the community to be built. But beyond that, and probably more importantly, there's the giving of time. There's the giving of community, your attention, your affection. How do you take someone who's lonely and put them into your family? How do you take someone who's new to town and make them feel welcome? How do you sit with someone who's broken and love on them? That is all giving. Think about a time that someone met your needs. From something as simple, to paying, as, simple as paying for your lunch to something more intense like bailing you out of debt, giving you a couch to crash on when you didn't have a place, a shoulder to cry on, some kind words to comfort your breaking heart when you were in the depths of sorrow. How did you feel in that moment? Did you feel good? Did you feel connected? Did you feel seen? That's because we are designed as human beings to, to flourish and thrive in an atmosphere of giving and receiving. We are hardwired to delight in that space. And healthy community will form in and around that atmosphere. And so that's my second point. It actually empowers and enables the building of community. Three, God promises to bless generosity. And that's what I opened with and said, I have chosen to participate in this promise and believe this. And there's so much that you can speak into this, but the one that I wanted to highlight is a scripture in Malachi 3, verses 8. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. This is literally the only scripture in our whole canon that says God is inviting man to test him. Think about that. <laughs> the holy God. He has this one little thing where he's like, you can test me on this. I will be proven faithful. And this is God's invitation for us to invest with the best terms of return that you can ever imagine. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You cannot outgive him. And so he will bless generosity. And lastly, I think that giving is an invitation to change the temperature and the condition of our hearts. This is the gospel put into action in a pragmatic way. Jesus, our rabbi and life guide, speaks about giving and money and treasure a lot, an unproportionate amount. You might be confused thinking about all of the tenets of Christianity and how much, why is Jesus speaking about money so much? What's going on? Well, it was not because he was greedy or because he was profiting from his message. Remember that he was essentially without a home and lived as a nomad with very, very little possessions. And he relied on others to meet his needs in towns that they arrived in. And he lived by faith. So he wasn't amassing money. So why is he talking about money so much? 
My suspicion is because it is a disarmingly accurate measure of the temperature of your heart. Matthew 6, 21 says, where your treasure is, there your heart is. Super simple. I grew up in South Africa and there was this phrase that was often said. I remember hearing it as a child. Show me your checkbook and I'll show you where your treasure is. It's like, I have divining powers. <laughs> I can tell you what you love and what you serve by showing me your bank statement. Where's your money going? What's it going to? But beyond that, I don't think that it's about an amount. I don't think that Jesus is looking for us to all raise a ton of money or to be wealthy and to have a bunch of earthly possessions and give them. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus highlights an elderly widow and he exemplifies her to his disciples saying she gave more than anyone else. But the story tells us that she just put in one dollar when other people were putting in thousands. Jesus identifies that what she gave wasn't a lot financially in terms of dollar amount, but it was a lot in terms of her heart and in terms of her position, in relation to where she was at and what she had, what she gave, blew everyone else out of the water. So it's not about an amount. It's about your heart. Giving is an invitation into the visceral, pragmatic, practical, highly accessible opportunity to challenge all that is sinful and selfish and to cultivate godly treasure in the forms of generosity and kindness and compassion, blessing others, being humbled and growing in servant-heartedness. I think that there's a thread in all of the things that we've spoken of that it requires to give. You have to give to come to a table that is diverse and maybe uncomfortable. You have to give up control to be adopted into a family. You have to give up your independence and your right to yourself. You have to give to be on mission. You've got to give up your dreams sometimes, but you also have to give. Tyler was there building someone's house. That took a lot of giving, time, effort, energy, finances, travel. We as Genesis give and believe in giving because it is the practice of godliness. It is manifesting within ourselves and fundamentally shifting our hearts and minds away from sin and from the self, upwards towards God, and then outwards towards each other. We give because in giving, we get to change the parameters and we can reassign kingdom value to any and everything. We can redeem material possessions and earthly wealth that would otherwise be a waste and convert them into kingdom treasure that cannot fade or perish, rot or rust, and they cannot be stolen. That's what scripture tells us. So what do you have to bring? Maybe you have a home where people can meet. Maybe you have a passion for a sport and you can bring community together. Maybe you have finances and you're able to bless and help those who are in need. Maybe you have a dream to start whatever it is, a business, a club, a social thing. Maybe you have an area of expertise that could really help people. What do you have to bring to this community here and outside? What seed has God planted in your heart?
And when you guys feel challenged to give, because sometimes it is hard, if you remember nothing else of what I've said, it's this. You cannot outgive God. He will always beat you in that arm wrestle. No matter how much you give, if it is in the heart of giving, you cannot outgive him. All right, wasn't that wonderful? All right, very practically, and we're going to land here. Number one, the table. It's a high value for us, and to be part of the community means that people know you. There's a small group of people that you do life with and that who know you. So those who lead a table community, would you stand, please? Just quickly, I just want to identify you for the, for the newbies. All right. So Kat and Kasim are our newest. All right. And uh, Chris and Wendy, they are our Merrill and my table community leaders. Uh, when they behave themselves, I go there. Uh, we actually had a great uh, time with them yesterday for a few hours. Troy is just with Maddie, who's not here. They've just taken over the Hagman's group. So the Hagman's have moved to Idaho. So they are now doing that. Austin at the back. Austin and Brandon lead one together. And Haley and Tyler lead one together. As you assume, they are an entity. They're a oneness. And Stu and Dana do. And Caleb and Sam. So... If you are new, and um, if I was you, I would look for good looks. <laughs> I would find out who's got the best food. Oh, I don't think you were listening. Oh, is that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you want to connect in one of those spaces, of course, it's always awkward the first time around. But hey, we actually love it. And I will close the Sunday down, no problem. And we do. But the midweek meals, absolutely not. Thanks, guys. You can be seated. Service. At the moment, you can serve um, with Troy and Kay, and uh, what's your name again? Samuel. Um, you can serve with them in two spaces, with the unhoused or the homeless and with uh, the lots. And what is the other one? Elderly. Low-income elderly folk here in Costa Mesa. Mission. Local and global, I really want you to understand the driving idea beyond mission is that you live for the benefit of others. Southern California is obvious. We all know this. It just nurtures the idea of I'm the most important person in my world. And what the gospel does is the gospel flips it around to say you are the most important person in my world. And even though it cost me everything, I was so proud of almost 27, 20-ish people who this summer, youngsters just like you, who went to Porto and to South Africa to serve, raised their own money, went and gave themselves away in that space. And uh, there's something that Jesus does when we live for the benefit of others. And lastly, Stu's point, great little story between you and me. We planted our 25 people about two months ago. We've had some people, as happens every summer, go move somewhere else. So the first time in five years that we went into the red in our bank account. Now, we've not taken one offering in five years. I felt God say when we planted the church, can you trust me? Five years, no offering. Last two months, we went into the red. And so the conversation was, well, should we kind of cut things back, you know, and, and I just thought, you know, Lord, this was not anyone's idea to this community. This was yours. 
I said, we need $5,000 in this week. I don't know where it's going to come from. I don't know how it's going to get here. But we need an investment of five grand. Two days later, we got a gift of 6,600 bucks from someone who's not in the church. You cannot get out give God. If this is your home community and this is your ecosystem, there is an invitation to give. Genesis Coast to Mesa, you just follow the tabs in giving. And uh, we want to give more money away than we spend. We're not there yet. That's our journey. Dana's going to lead us in the sacraments. And uh, then we're going to land together with a song or two. D. Let's stand. We are going to read something together. I think Ben has it up there. But before we do, I'm going to ask us to do this. It's going to be a little bit tight, but I think it matters. I'm going to ask you to come out of your seats, and we are going to pack as tight as possible around this table together.